What's going on, folks? Welcome back to yet another episode of In Defense of Liberation, the show that is working towards and educating about a true people's liberation movement, and hopefully one day, a true proletarian revolution. Uh, But until that day comes, I am your host, Josh, and I just want to say thanks for stopping by. If you hear any background noise, that's because I'm driving. I do apologize. Um, And also, I would like to say excuse me ahead of time for the amount of coughing I'm going to do. Um, I smoke a lot of weed, and also I had COVID uh, about a year ago now, but it did some damage. Um, And then I had an upper respiratory infection about two months ago that I really feel like I haven't been able to get rid of, so that's exciting, but, you know, it's annoying to hear someone cough a lot, I guess, so (laughs) I figured I'd let you know ahead of time that's going to be happening, Um, but if you're cool with that, again, I want to say thanks for coming by, I really do appreciate it, and uh, I hope what we have to talk about today is useful and uh, important to some, uh, because today we're going to be talking about the commodity process. Um, We're going to talk about briefly the formation of the capitalist system, um, somewhat of its uh, origin in the sense of its historical development. I'm not going to get too much into the specifics because I think that's unnecessary, and I also don't have a history degree. So the reason why it's an it's an important thing to understand the commodity process and the origins of capitalism is because that is the system which we live in today. A lot of people have issue with Marx and Engels for plenty of reason, but many folks don't understand that Marx and Engels were not some mad scientists who are trying to develop a system where everyone can get free whatever they want and nobody has to work and we're all just going to do drugs and just not care about anything and we're just going to fall we're going to fall victim to the devil's temptation as my grandma really thinks socialism is about um (laughs) so for those of you who might not understand who understand that it's not that but might also not understand what Marx and Engels really were about Marx and Engels were two uh, philosophers, political economists, um, and uh, scientists of the 19th century. Um, And I call them scientists because, first and foremost, they were. A lot of people do not give Marxism or its creators, uh, Marx and Engels, enough credit for the scientific nature of their theories Um, rather than just simply trying to logic something out in their own mind and make something make sense as we all know there's a lot of supposedly logical opinions that a lot of people cultivate up there in their noggin that isn't quite uh, um, parallel to the reality we live in and so Marx and Engels saw that they saw the development of political economy as being um, kind of idealist. They saw the ways in which reforms were trying to be passed, the ways that the workers were trying to fight for protections as not illogical in the sense of like, oh, you're just all stupid, 
but illogical in the sense of if you are going to create a system, uh, you have to create a system that is able to function within a given reality. And Marx and Engels, even though they dedicated a majority of their time to uh, things like labor issues, uh, oppression, power structures, class analysis, and things like that, they both also did a lot of reading and some writing about different forms of, for example, natural dialectics. They studied how um, the things within nature relate to one another. Uh, in his anti-during, Engels goes to great lengths to show how dialectics and how the study of certain sciences is to be mimicked also in social and political economy, uh, economy in order to fully understand the society we live in. We can't just look at something and try to cultivate in our mind an assumption about it. We have to study it. We have to get to its origins. We have to understand it in its given environment, meaning in its relations to those things around it. We cannot just study something in isolation and we can't just make up our own understanding about things. We have to have logical analysis. So the scientific nature of Marxism, once called scientific socialism, is incredibly crucial to understanding why Marx and Engels did what they did. So again, Marx and Engels are commonly misunderstood even more so less uh, even more so they aren't read and therefore most people don't actually know anything about Marx or Engels other than from accounts of those who normally don't have a very favorable opinion of these folks. But Marx and Engels were scientists who were trying to understand the world around them. That is what philosophy and science is intended to do. One of those things that they wanted to understand was the political economic structure of society, meaning how politics and economics intertwine and relate to one another in order to form a given society. And more so than that, because as we know, usually phenomena occur and then human beings try to understand them through scientific development. But very, uh, very rarely do human beings dictate the phenomena or cause the um, development or disruption. It is usually due to internal contradictions within the system that leads towards a given development. I say all this to say the understanding of political economy was not always uh, so scientific. Prior to Marx and Engels, amongst a few others who existed before them and whose theories they took from, a lot of the political economic understandings was just plainly incorrect. Uh, the notion that the wealthy were rich because of their, you know, um, assumed moral goodness. This was a theory for a long time. Um, 
purist or Puritans and Protestants also believe that through poverty and suffering, one learns character and one learns how to believe in God that much more because God will supposedly deliver you through these struggles. But again, as we know, this is only so good uh, as it lines up with reality. And for the millions of people who go hungry every day, the millions more who die from hunger every day, this suffering is not building character it's building graves and so it's really hard to understand but for a very long time most people didn't do fantastic analysis before they started spouting off ideas we have a lot of that still today so you had political economists like Marx and Engels also philosophers so they did this kind of work in many different fields, but they would write letters, they would write, uh, um, what are they called, polemics, they would write all kinds of booklets, pamphlets, just to take given theories um, about economics, about politics, about social issues, about philosophy and humans' understanding of their own selves and their own world um, from an abstract perspective. And they critique all of the given theories. One of those theories was the political economy of capitalism. Why does capitalism work the way that it works? There was plenty of theories going around. Again, one of them being that the rich were just morally good and so they would continue becoming rich and the poor and the poverty stricken and those on the the whacking end of the uh, social issues are there because they are just evil. They are savage-like. They are beasts. Um, This was a genuinely accepted political economic Uh, study of capitalism and things like colonization for a given time period. But Marx and Engels knew through their philosophy careers that there is no true thing as morally good or morally bad. There is no such thing as good and evil in a pure sense. These are all perspectives that are based on a given relationship. For example... I really highly doubt that Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and folks like them look in the mirror every day and say, I'm evil. I want to destroy the world. I am going to do anything in my power to make people know that I am an evil madman. No, they go out in front of the TV screen and try to pretend like they're the fucking saviors of the world. Because deep down in their heart, if there was to be some deep evil, it would be so much more on the fore, and it would be such a different reality. And in in this sense, you know, it's also unfalsifiable, because you cannot test something like evilness against a control. You can't test it against reality. You can idealize it and say, well, I think that that's evil, but Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk don't think it's evil, or at least they don't think it's evil enough to stop. They don't think it's bad enough to stop, which means there has to be some 
other kind of logic there. There has to be some other motivational force. So Marx and Engels set out to really begin to understand the reason why uh, the wealth accumulation was so heavy on one side of the capitalist sphere. They wanted to understand why the conditions of the workers were so poor and why the workers were so poor. Um, They wanted to understand why society operated the way that it did. So Marx and Engels spent very little time in their lives dedicated to developing the theories of socialism. Now, that's not to say they didn't, but they didn't really write about, for example, really existing socialism. They wrote about the theories of socialism. They wrote about why most theories of socialism were utopian and why they and their theories of Marxism uh, were called scientific socialism. But the reason why they were able to come to these scientific theories about socialism was because they did something which very few in their time and since then have been able to do, and that is they dedicated an entire lifetime to a scientific and full theoretical analysis of capitalism in its material existence. Rather than idealizing what capitalism should be or what they wanted it to be or what they thought it could be or should be, Marx and Engels said, this is precisely how capitalism functions. And the most central point to that capitalist mode of production is the development of the commodity under capitalism. Now, a commodity is something that has use value and exchange value. Use value means, as the name gives, that what you purchase, what you create, has a direct use, meaning it can be used in order to provide for a need of people. Now, that's pretty broad, and it is kind of difficult to understand what a commodity is from a definition. But a commodity under capitalism versus a commodity under the given systems prior to us, because, you know, motherfuckers still needed hammers, and so they still needed to figure out how to make a hammer uh, and how to exchange for that. So at one time, you might have had producers who would sell three hammers, and then you had producers who would make a bottle of wine, and you would have some form of exchange there. So again, a commodity is something that has a use value, and it has an exchange value, meaning that this commodity is worth a given amount of... uh, You don't want to say money, because money is a specific development under capitalism. But you got, you got to say that, for example, this hammer has a certain exchange value. This hammer is worth one bottle of wine. This hammer is worth 
three heads of corn. This hammer is... You see what I mean? But eventually, this system becomes volatile, right? Um, And also, as exchanges and commodities develop and become more and more quantified, their quality also changes. So now you have a development into a different form of exchange where rather than goods for goods or even goods for services, you have goods for money, for capital. So, and money and capital are not necessarily the same thing, but for the purposes of this episode, for the sake of understanding, I hope that makes sense. But the commodity production is done in a certain way under capitalism because prior to capitalism you could trade a hammer for two bottles of wine you could turn that two bottles of wine uh or that hammer into the same amount of money that you use to produce the hammer and that's all you need you know because once you do that you can go back to making another hammer But eventually, a development comes where the production of a thing is not simply for its use value anymore. We are not simply producing hammers because people need hammers. We are now producing hammers because I am a hammer manufacturer. Meaning, I am producing hammers not because people need hammers necessarily although that is the reason why my hammers will sell. But I am producing hammers to make money. There is a given point in capitalism's development where profits begin winning over the use of goods. So the need for a profit is more important than the need of a production of a good. So a commodity takes a specific form then. It has to have a use value and it has to have an exchange value, right? And commodities are produced by those who own the means of production. So during the time where hammers were produced for hammers' sake and exchanged at an equal uh, or as equal as possible level, um, and they're in exchange for the, the needs one would have to create another hammer this was when individuals were capable of owning or you know we'll say owning uh the means of production they were able to acquire the tools the resources and again their own labor because these are individual producers and therefore they own enough of the means of production they own enough of the things that they require to produce a good themselves that then when they sell it, they are making enough money to go out and buy some more, right? Well, again, now the given the system changes. It's no longer about just simply having what you need. It's about having as much as you can get because the more you get, the more likely you are to survive. The more likely you are to make it in a system where everything requires money in order to be provided that thing. So for example, if you want food, it's no longer so easy that you can have your own uh, tact of land and go out and farm it because now you're a serf, 
So all of your land, all of your goods, all of your crops go to your landlord or take it a step further. You know, you are a worker who produces a good in a factory, but then that good, that commodity is not sold by you and you are not the one pocketing the profits. You produce a commodity and then that commodity is usurped or appropriated by another. That is the owning class. So how is this done? Well, through means that we call primitive accumulation, which was a period of history where the ruling class powers plundered the entire world of its gold, of its copper, of its silver, of its hemp, of its flax, of its rubber, of its oil, of its water, of its cheap labor force, of its fruits, of its vegetables, of its commodities. And by doing so, one group of people, the ruling classes of places like Great Britain, the United States, Spain, Italy, the Netherlands, France, Germany, all of these places were able to make a shit ton of money, a shit ton of money by just stealing it from those who had it. As Michael Parenti says, these places that we call poor countries are not poor. They, in fact, were far richer than the places that we consider the wealthiest places in the world. Because these places became wealthy not by the simple underdevelopment of these third world countries and the superiority of the quote-unquote first world countries, but as Michael Parenti says, by the over-exploitation of these countries. These countries are not poor, they're rich. You do not go to a poor country to exploit people. You do not go to a poor country to get rich. You go to a rich country to steal their money, to steal their wealth, to steal their resources and their cheap labor force, to steal their families, to steal their culture, to steal everything that you can from them that is profitable and use it to your own good. That is how the wealthy countries became so wealthy. And that period of time is called primitive accumulation. There are many cases where primitive accumulation still is kind of developing today, although it is in a small, small sphere, and therefore we wouldn't want to uh, swing it under the epoch that we call primitive accumulation. But theories like the, the usurpation of land and stuff like that still continues today. So by doing so, you have set up a ruling class. There's always a ruling class. There has been the kings, the queens, the lords, the landlords. There has been the slave owners. There has been uh, the patriarchs. There has been a ruling class of sorts since the end of what has been called early communalist societies. As soon as the early onset of individual agriculture uh, you see the development of a ruling group, a more dominant force within society. This dominant force now is so wealthy and so powerful that they are the exclusive owners of the means of production. If you need anything to produce a good, you have to go out and buy it. You no longer can have it. You no longer can simply maybe produce it yourself. 
you might be able to do it in small forms, but to be able to make the profit, you have to produce extreme amounts of commodities. Not just, again, not just for the use. You don't want to produce just for the supply that is needed. You want to produce to make sure that you are going to make as much profit off of producing those things as you can. So now, again, you no longer own the means of production. You got to go build something. You got to pay the people who own that shit. But mostly, the people who don't own that shit can't afford to buy that. So instead, they go to work for the people who do own the means of production. So for example, when I go to work every day, I am going to work for a person who is going to take, they are going to take everything that I produce. So if I work at a factory, right? And I'm making t-shirts. Every single t-shirt that I make, there's not a single one that they're going to give to me and say, you know what? Why don't you sell this one? Why don't you take this one to the market and sell it? You're the one who produced it. No, every single shirt that I would make would go directly to the person who hired me, who owns all of the materials for making the shirts, who owns the factory, who owns the tools that I am using in the factory, who owns me and my coworkers for eight hours a day, five days a week. Just like any other commodity, we are actively sold on the market. And just like every other commodity that is produced for a profit, we too are produced for a profit. We are purchased at a minimum wage and then we work and produce things that make our bosses, the owning class, five, 10, 50 times what it is they paid us. And by doing so, they are making a shit ton of profits. So how is this done? Well, Marx and Engels set out to explain this very thing in a way that was not only scientific, but could be understood by the average worker. So they developed further the theories of John Locke, Adam Smith, and others, the theory of surplus value. But they developed it not in its metaphysical form, in its abstract idealist form, but in its scientific nature. They showed precisely how surplus value, how surplus labor is stolen under a capitalist commodity system. So again, it is important to understand like other commodities, workers are sold and bought on a market. That money that we are paid is our exchange. That is our exchange rate. That is our exchange value. Our use value is to produce profits. That is a very, very profitable uh, endeavor. And the fact that you and I do not have the money to employ other people's labor, but in fact can only make money through the employment of our own labor for somebody else's benefit. This is the relationship under capitalism. So in that relationship, you have a given group, which is the owning class, and you have a given group, which is the working class. 
So the working class has to work for everything it has. And in order to be able to stay on top, the owning class will not give the workers the amounts of wealth which they have produced. They will not give the workers more money than they require. They will actually set the minimum wage, maybe not consciously, but scientifically, they will set a minimum wage that gives people the bare minimum sustenance that they need in order to make it to their next shift. This is the mode of reproduction. This is how workers are paid enough to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to wash themselves, to produce children and be able to feed them, hopefully. But again, it's not because the owning class really is appreciative of the workers and wants to make sure they're well taken care of. If that was the case, we wouldn't all be so poor. But in fact, the minimum wage is precisely set in a way which allows for the most profit to be made off of the work of others. So let's get into it. How is this done? Well, surplus value is produced through the employment of labor, right, for a minimum wage, the lowest that you can get away for paying someone for laboring for you, and then using them for as much value as you can get out of them. We say this phrase, uh, the, uh, oh, Jesus Christ, the, the most bang for your buck, right? That is precisely what capitalism looks for. It looks for the most amount of profit that it can uh, siphon out of something for the least amount of money. So you get a minimum wage and then your employer, the owner of the means of production and of your labor, will extract as much value as they can. So they'll work you to death for as little much money as they can get you. Um, By doing so, they are scraping the top off of what you're producing. So say in a given day, right, I work at a t-shirt factory. And that t-shirt factory charges $10 for every t-shirt I make. Let's say, like today, you have a federal minimum wage of $7.25. And I'm going to work a 10-hour shift. Or actually, we'll say 8-hour. So in that time, I'm going to make a certain amount of money. (laughs) Oh, geez. Let's see. $7.25 times 8. You're talking, what is that, 80 bucks a day? No, God, how is my math so bad? What the fuck? Hold on. 58 bucks. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I can't believe. Okay, we're just going to pretend like I did that math really well. Nobody's going to say anything, okay? So you make 58 fucking dollars a day. But that would mean, right, after five or let's say six t-shirts, after you've made six t-shirts, you should be able to go and clock out, right? Well, you paid me $58, so I made you $60. We'll we'll even say that, right? Because you can't make 5.8 t-shirts. But the boss will say, hey, 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 what, what, do you, what do you think you're doing? I paid you for eight hours of work. 
you'd say, right, but you only gave me $58, and I already made $58 for you. And he'll say, oh, that's great, get back to work. Get back to work or you're fired, and I'm not even paying you this $58. And again, the worker doesn't own anything. It's not like you and I can say, hey, fuck you, that's fine. I got all the food I need, I have affordable housing, I have health care, I have educational benefits, I have communal and societal uh, safety nets that are there for me so that I can be provided for. No, we basically go, uh, no, please don't do that because if I don't have this job, I'm going to die. So we have to work for those eight hours. So what does that mean? Well, we're probably not going to be able to just sit on our ass for the last, I don't know, five hours of our shift after we make five t-shirts. Because then we're not producing any value for this employer. And he's not going to allow us to do that. I mean, uh, how many of us get yelled at for being on our phones at work or sitting down or talking to our coworkers? It's because in that moment, the money that that person is in trying to employ, the value that they are trying to extract out of you and me is not being extracted. You are not producing value for them. So... In that eight hours, I might produce eight, 10, 15 t-shirts. Do I get the extra t-shirts to sell them? No. All those t-shirts go to the owner, which means that then they get all of that profit. So again, $10 a t-shirt, $80, $100 a day, multiply that by five days a week, and you got something like a few hundred dollars worth of profit. Take that a month, you got a few thousand. You take that a year, you got a few ten or hundred thousand dollars worth of profit. And again, you and I are just making the bare minimum, which means we're not able to save, which means we're not able to put extra money on stocks, which means we're not able to go out and buy a business and employ other people so that we can start making a profit. No, we are being exploited. And this surplus value, which is being stolen from us, is our labor. We produced those goods. We produced those commodities. We worked, and we were the ones who made those profits for the owners. And yet, we get not a single part of the profits. We get the scraps. We get what's barely going to sustain us a decent living. And that is if we are very hopeful and living in a much better world than most of us live in. Because most of us don't actually get everything we need. We get everything we need to barely survive. But that usually means cup of noodles every single night, a shitty one-bedroom apartment that isn't heated, that's cabinets are empty, and whose people who stay in it are very rarely ever even home because they're working two jobs or three jobs or they're working two jobs and going to college in order to hope that someday soon they'll be able to make more money and this false idea that we all can just become a part of the ruling class by our very hard work is also a ridiculous scheme because again if we can't make a profit if we can't make more money than we have in the first place because we are working for the bare scraps then we are not able to get up top even if we get a college degree that's what student loan is for is to keep us down to make sure we stay in the working class that's why then right even school becomes a commodity school becomes a business You go to school not just simply to learn,
but to acquire skills which will make you more money. And in doing so, you pay the school a shit ton of money. And that makes sure that they also get the most bang for their buck. So the commodity process, the producing of things, not for the need of the thing. Like, for example, during the time of early agriculture, you might make uh, a table, right? A table and a set of chairs. Not because, and excuse me, I'm opening the door at my job. This is about to be very loud. You are not producing a table and chairs because you want to go to the, you know, the market and try to sell them. You are producing a table and chairs because you and your family need somewhere to eat in your home, right? If you are lucky enough to own the home and be able to produce a table and chair. But again, today you are producing a table and chair to take it to a market to be able to sell it. This is the difference between the commodities that have always existed versus the commodities which exist today. This is a dialectical progression. This is something that is also very central to Marx and Engels' understanding of capitalism, is what did it develop out of? It is famously quoted in Marx's um, uh, critique on the gossip program, where he says, he's speaking about capitalism to socialism, but the same process occurs from feudalism to capitalism, which is where he says that the new society will be, will be, uh, oh shit. It'll be, I, I think it's marked with the, the, something with the markings of the old society, basically saying that parts of the new society will be comprised of parts of the old society. So, for example, one thing that we can look at and say still exists from an old society is landlording. For a long period of time, you owned land or you had, you know, the ability to use land uh, at a more, I don't want to say egalitarian rate, but the the difference between the amount of people who actually own land today and who live on land that they don't own is a lot more split than it once was. Like you had more landowners at a point in time than you do today. That's just a simple truth. But the, de the development from that society to today is important also to understand and seeing how the old society progresses into today's new society. Um, shit, hold on one second. So, trying to figure out how to best progress this forward. When you look, when Marx and Engels studied capitalism, they didn't just study it in an individualistic sense. They didn't just study it on its own. They studied it in its development. They studied it, they studied it in its historical time place. They studied it as best as they could in order to understand it completely. So they looked for everywhere where you could learn about this kind of important um, process. They wanted you to understand not just it in its simplistic nature, 
but it in its holistic nature. So they studied it also in its earliest developments, what it developed from. By doing this, they gave us an understanding of the commodity, not under a abstract idealist understanding, but a material understanding in the given society, which is run by a capitalist mode of production. So they studied the commodity as it exists in a capitalist society. By doing so, they came to the understanding of surplus value, not just as an abstract idea, but as the very basis for the system that is the main driving force of what is produced, uh, who owns what, uh, what groups of people are in what place in society. And that is, again, the very foundation of our system today. It is what decides what gets produced and what doesn't. That's why during the pandemic, you still had Apple producing thousands of iPhones, while I guarantee you they could have used all of that money and their technological advancements to be able to produce ventilators, to be able to produce oxygen. I'm sure they could have turned half of their facilities across the world into these things and many more people would be alive today. They could have also used a shit ton of money to build hospitals, to build hospital beds, to build the technology that is used in hospitals. But instead, they produced iPhones because iPhones are more profitable than ventilators, believe it or not. Under a capitalist commodity structure, the things that you and I work for, the things that we produce are not always for the betterment of the people they're being produced for. For example, there are plenty of vehicles that are produced on a day-to-day -day basis that you and me are meant to drive. However, although this make, might make it easy for us to get to our nine to five, it does not make life easier for us. We have to spend a lot of money on a car. We have to fill it with gas. We have to take care of that car. But now, not only is it just not necessarily the most important tool to us, but it is only important in a given system that doesn't have public transportation, that doesn't have communities that are connected to one another uh, in a way that could be, you know, walked or in a way where you could get to everywhere you need to go, again, with public transportation. Sorry, excuse me. Um, you can't just get to these things using public transportation. You can't just walk there. And on top of that, cars and the immense amount of pollution that they've led to has also destroyed the very planet that human beings live on. So even though it might have made it easy in some sense, it only, first of all, made it easy in a given system where you have to have a car to get a job, to be able to get to your job, to be able to get everything you need, um, where all of our homes are, uh, you know, if we want quality homes in land, we have to go out into suburbia. And in order to be in suburbia, first, you got to afford to get there. And to afford to get there, you also got to be able to afford to drive a car to and from there. 
because no public transportation goes into these suburbs. Um, most public transportation barely goes into parts of the city where the majority of people live. Um, so again, the production of things is not solely for their necessity, for their use value, but more importantly, for their exchange value. So the commodity under capitalism, as Marx and Engels understood it, was wholly different than the commodity under feudalism, under early slave societies, and early agricultural societies. The commodity was specifically for profit now, because now we live in a system, capitalism, whose entire foundational law of motion is profit. If you don't make profit, your business doesn't stay open. If you don't make more money stealing resources from another country than you would trying to steal them from here where you are based, or if you have to spend more money on stealing that labor than you make in, then you're probably going to uh, try to install a puppet government or maybe lead a uh, attempted invasion like the Bay of Pigs. Um, in order to try to take that instead of having to pay for it. So, you know, again, capitalism is always looking for new ways to make profits. But if you don't do these things, you don't make profits, which means your business goes under. And if your business goes under, you're not doing capitalism very well. Because if capitalism was just a system that was going to bust and, uh, you know, kind of pop every so often, then we wouldn't do it, right? Right, guys? That would be stupid. That would be a dumb thing to keep uh, uh, using a system which naturally leads to extreme amounts of recession and quote-unquote panics. Um, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. No, 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 no. Because, see, if we did that, then only some people would have what they needed. And, and, you know, then every time there was a recession, a bunch of people who were a part of the ruling class wouldn't have enough money to make it back. And then the very rich people would be able to steal their land and their resources and their corporations. And we, we would never do anything like that. But in fact, again, this isn't, we, and that is precisely how the system runs. I, I hope we were picking up on my sarcasm there. Um, the system runs this way because capitalism's law of motion, so the thing that pushes it forward, um, is profit. And so in order to stay afloat, in order to stay on top in a capitalist system, one must make more profits than those around them. Simple as that. Now, this is not because capitalists are evil. This is not because capitalism is evil, but just like anything else, capitalism is a system that exists that has a foundational principle. It has a given law of motion, just like the advancement of the solar system, just like the development of human capabilities. It progresses quantitatively, and then it progresses qualitatively. The more and more early individual producers there were, soon it became 
uh, not individual producers, but small manufacturers. You went from a quantity to a quality change. From small manufacturers, you have more and more and more wealth being made, more and more people having to go work, having to try to make money, where boom, now you have factories, right? You have large-scale producers um, that are employing 100, 200 workers in a given facility. Um, This is a development which is not based on any moralistic understanding. This is a system which is not developed uh, in a, a godly or ungodly fashion. This is the system that is, and by trying to understand something that is by why it should or shouldn't be is ridiculous because it is, and therefore we must understand it as it is. That's why Marx and Engels dedicated so much time to developing an understanding of capitalism and its very nature, not trying to explain why people need socialism. So I hope any of this was useful. Um, Before I go, I want to just kind of sum it up real quick. So basically, capitalism developed out of a feudalist system, meaning that capitalism had certain parts of it, which it bore from the old society. It had the same form of exploitation, or I should say it had the same essence of exploitation of one group over the other. But the form that that rule took was different, right? It developed into capitalism. Capitalism is a system based off of private accumulation. It has a mode of production which is based off of profit. And it is a system which has to continuously make more and more profit, stealing more and more resources in order to continue staying afloat. Just like any other business, it has to expand, otherwise it dies. Otherwise it gets bought up by bigger businesses. So if we understand this, then we can move to how that profit is made. That profit is made through the production of what we call a commodity. Now commodities have always existed in the sense that people have always produced produced things that they've needed whether that be food, whether that be tools, whether that be shelter. It is a human's very nature in order, it is a human's very nature to use the material reality, to use nature, to use nature and to apply its own labor to that in order to produce for its own good. Human beings have always used nature in this way. However, Now human beings use so much nature that it cannot reproduce itself. And it will continue doing this because this is the way that it makes money. The more trees it cuts down, the more monoculture uh, it grows, the more uh, uh, big, huge tacts of land it, it destroys in order to allow for beef cattle grazing. Um, all of this is done for the sake of profits. And the more it does this, the more profits it makes. This is its found, its uh, fundamental law of motion. This law of motion is something that will eventually lead to a point of bust. 
meaning you produce so much, you continuously make things that nobody is buying in the hope that there will be profits made. And eventually profits aren't made. The economy flips. There is more in uh, production than there is making profit. You have overproduction. You have the bust. Now this happens as angles pointed to every five to 10 years. And this is something that we have witnessed in our lifetime, my lifetime, five or six times already. Um, insane recessions, like epoch ending recessions. Um, and the money has always gone back to the ruling class, just like any other time, except the ruling class will reorganize itself. You will have mergers between large businesses. You will have trade deals. You will have trade organizations set up like NATO or OPEC in order to ensure that the ruling class is the one making as much profit as they can and deciding which ruling classes will make that profit. This is a system which needs to be destroyed. If we want to see the goods and the needs of the masses met, then we need to destroy the system that produces things not for the benefit of all, but for the profit of some based on the exploitation of the many. Socialism and our theories to overthrow capitalism need not be based on some broad idea or abstract thought that we have, but on a scientific analysis and understanding of capitalism and a use of that analysis in order to build a scientific socialism. Some recommendations for reading that might, I might have are Wage, Labor, and Capital by Karl Marx. Um, you can also read The Foundation of, or The Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State by Engels. You can look up The Marxist Project on YouTube um, and also read Socialism, Scientific, and Utopian. Um, you can reach out to me for some more resources to learn about these things, but yeah, this is the commodity production under capitalism and kind of why it is done the way that it is. Um, and as a Marxist, uh, I must say that the system cannot be fixed. It must be destroyed. And it must be destroyed wholly. And it must be created anew from its origins in a way that meets up with our material reality, not some idealized version of communism that we think would be really cool we have to look at the reality we're in and try to develop to that point. So our theories have to meet our material reality. If you're still listening to this, I want to say thank you very much. Um, please go check out my social media on TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Indefensive Liberation. You can also reach out to me at indefensiveliberation at gmail.com. And you can find my website at forliberation dot wixsite.com forward slash website um if you enjoyed the show please rate and review me um on apple Podcasts. it really helps my reach um and also go check out my other episodes if you enjoyed this one um thank you so much for listening if this was helpful for you please spread this along again i do this to try to not only learn myself, because by doing the podcast, I force myself to have to learn things, to have things to talk about, but also to try to propagandize, agitate, and educate, because we need to be organizing, because capitalism is literally destroying our planet, and we're all uh, facing an ecological crisis that is not caused by our individual decisions, 
but it is caused by capitalism's very intrinsic law of motion and the destruction by corporations that have used the law of motion of capitalism to make themselves incredibly rich in a way that you and I will never understand. And they use that wealth to continue depleting the earth of its resources, destroying people, destroying the air, destroying the water. And they will keep doing this until it is no longer profitable. So here's one way to make it no longer, no longer profitable. By overthrowing the governments that allow them to do this. By taking power in the hands of the people and nationalizing the production of certain resources. By changing the very structure, the very essence of the material reality we live in from a capitalist one to a socialist one. And by doing this, it needs to be the people, the united masses of the oppressed and working classes who come together, who combine their struggles for liberation, who recognize that the working class, the oppressed class, is the masses and the mass of people who produce everything for the benefit of the few. And we can no longer allow this to happen. We must agitate, educate, propagandize, and organize to end capitalism and to install scientific socialism by the people for the people. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.